Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. So Susan, you're back. Welcome back. back. It's good. You didn't miss anything. No. (laughs) At all. Just a quiet couple of months. Quiet yeah. couple of months. Hanging no, out. Nothing yeah. happened. Nothing yeah. The Americans is back on. Yeah. <laughs> In Russian news. Um, so you had a baby. I did. And How did that go? It, it went well. We like her. We're going to keep Good. her. Okay. Um, and guys, Devin Nunes is personally responsible, I think, <gasps> for the early arrival of this child. Oh, I thought you were going to say something He brought about, joy oh, no. into the world for a change. <laughs> this is not. This is. <laughs> Um, I don't know about Troy, but I, about three weeks early, went in for like a non-stress test, which was like a blood pressure. You know, my blood pressure had been a little bit high. Um, And uh, then he released this memo that I'm reading on my phone. (laughs) And like the doctors keep coming in and being like, your your blood pressure is really, really high. (laughs) And then they're like... I think you need to put the so I like put the phone down. I try and like meditate. Like it just keeps popping up in my mind. <laughs> and finally, the doctors are like, "Your blood pressure has now reached like alarmingly high levels, and you're gonna have a baby today." Um. So anyway, wow, Devin Nunes and your goddamn memo. Um. Thanks, Devin. Thanks, Thanks a Devin. lot, Devin. So, uh, is yeah. there anything in the in uh in the I. Uh, two-month-old existence of the baby that reflects uh, Devin like Nunes' Like she was then, like, input. imprinted by just, like, I mean, a, prim- a primal... Uh, is she just, issuing like, subpoenas? Is she, she was trying very to interview? skeptical yeah. of FISA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. she does. She is. She's a FISA skeptic, um, you know. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll remain to be seen. I mean, I'm grateful to have had the extra three weeks. We really like her. Um, so I don't... Um, it's not a bad thing that I blame him with. But, yes, he is now uh, linked to her, uh, her, her origin story. So, Devin Nunes, if you're listening... Uh, this is the one good outcome mm-hmm. of your whole memo. Mm-hmm. Uh, we thought about naming Capade. the baby after you, but it, it didn't work with our last name. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the return of Susan edition. Shouldn't it be the, the, the Devin Nunes? <clears throat> the Devin Nunes had a baby edition. <laughs> <laughs> My my the, my labor was prompted by Devin Nunes' edition. Oh my god! I seriously, I need to find him and tell him this. But you should just put it all on Twitter. Make it a thread. Right. And just yeah. Be like, yeah. Yeah. It should just, be a boast. I'll just mother. keep telling the story past the point where like nobody wants to hear. It, right. There's like a point. Like, the you're like, story. and then I was in labor. It's like, no, 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 Devin, we're going all the way. We're going <laughs> to talk fully through this thing. I'm sure we know uh, he cares about uncovering the whole truth. Mm-hmm, he does. Mm-hmm. He wants to know. And that memo did send blood pressure soaring, but I don't think quite with the dramatic <laughs> effect as it did in your case. <laughs> Perhaps not quite as literally. <laughs> right. 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 Ma'am, you need to calm down. What's bothering you? What's happening? Why is your voice? Have you seen this? <laughs> I'm like trying to explain. 
explain to them like there's this memo there's a twitter hashtag release oh, the memo but they, these are doctors in washington they know all about it <laughs> she's screaming about oh, someone one in Devon. doctor is in washington if jill mccabe had been your attending physician oh, right. she would have understood she would have gotten it <laughs> she's like girl I got you I feel you we're gonna get through this <laughs> Oh, my God. Although it did lead to a, whenever I uh, emailed everyone to let them know that I was going to be out on early maternity leave, an excellent release the baby hashtag that occurred <laughs> in a lawfare thread that, that was yeah, entertaining. Yeah, pretty, pretty uh-huh. special. Uh, if you're just tuning in for the first time and wondering who the hell these people are, uh, I'm Shane Harris here, of course, with my friends uh, Ben Wittes, Markoff, and Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, everybody. Hi, hey, Shane. Missed you, Susan. And a, I missed you, Susan. Welcome back, Susan. Welcome back. We've been what hearing like the Twitter. P- the Twitters have been waiting for your return. Fans mm-hmm. have been wondering mm-hmm. where you are. Mm-hmm. I'm back. Yeah. It just I've got hasn't a lot been... of opinions to share. Yeah. Good. Oh, you didn't it hasn't totally been the unplug. same without you. We've you been totally dull. Unplug. No. no, I saw you on Twitter. Lady. I know. I, I know. Saw you. I was worried when I came back. Like so much <laughs> would have happened. I would never catch up. No, 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 no. But you were in my. The more things change. The Every more time I, in case you missed it, feed when you open the app, it's like there's Susan right there. Three fifty-eight a.m. Like she is not sleeping. Um, all right. This week on the podcast, lots to get to. Robert Mueller tells the president's lawyers that President Trump is the subject of a criminal investigation. Just the subject. Not the verb, not the predicate. The subject. Or the direct object. Sure. He may be the direct object of something. We're going to talk about that. Uh, Trump vows to pull the military out of Syria like really soon. I think was the time. Sort of, maybe. Sort of, maybe like soon. Yeah. Because okay. we defeated ISIS. It's totally done, guys. He's just over it. Just so over it. And American troops may be heading to the U.S. border with Mexico. So they come from Syria to, like, you know, El Paso. Mm-hmm. All right. That makes sense. Let's totally. We're going to unpack it all. Let's start with um, this story that ran yesterday in the Washington Post uh, by my colleagues, uh, Carol Lenig and Robert Costa, which give it up. Yeah. Oh, totally. That was like, there were multiple scoops. There was in lots story. in this story, right? Mm-hmm. So the headline of the story is that in conversations, with the president's lawyers, the special counsel's team has said that the president is the subject of a criminal investigation or a subject in this investigation, we might say, uh, separate from a target or a witness. And we're going to talk about what that means. And then maybe in the second part of this discussion, also, uh, it seems at least that the president's lawyers uh, have inferred or maybe been told directly that Robert Mueller intends to write a report or reports, plural, coming out of the investigation. And this has now raised all kinds of questions about are these going to be public reports? What's that going to say? Uh, where are they going to go, et cetera? So let's start, though, with the headline of the piece. And and Susan, since you're back, I'm going to let you do the honors. Um, so when we say – I think it's important to first start by making a distinction here. But what is the subject of an investigation? And particularly, what is the subject of an investigation versus the target of an investigation? And why is it significant that the president's lawyers have been told he is a subject? Right. So there are basically three buckets, as you've alluded to, whenever you have a federal investigation. One is you're a witness. And if you're a criminal defense attorney and uh, prosecutors want to interview your client, you want to figure out really, really quickly, okay, who is my client in relation to this? And so this is the terminology that's used. So if you're a witness, it just means like you're somebody who might have information relevant to this investigation, but your conduct is not at issue, right? So, you know, you're, you're a traditional witness. You saw something that happened, you know, the example people often use is like you're the bank teller that got robbed, that kind of thing. Um, then if you're the target of the investigation, that's a way of saying um, you 
you are about to be indicted. And in fact, it's, it's such a strong statement that receiving a target letter is actually a really, really significant uh, development and in investigation. We talked th- about this a little bit um, whenever there was some reporting early on that Paul Manafort had received a target letter. And so he knew that he was basically about to be indicted. It it's sounds so polite, step. by the way. But right. Go ahead. <laughs> the target of our investigation. Um, and then there is this subject, uh, which is sort of a nebulous middle ground. So the subject is when your personal conduct is part of the investigation. You're not just a witness. They're actually looking into what you did. Um, now, and why, right? And why, right? And so, and they're trying to figure it out, but they aren't, I think the way to sort of read it is to say, you aren't a target yet, mm-hmm. but you could be. Mm-hmm. So then the question and, and the strategic question that an attorney has to ask, and I think there's some really interesting tidbits in this article, is by sitting down and, and uh, agreeing to an interview, are you more likely to move yourself from the subject category into mm. the target category, mm-hmm. in which case do not have the interview? Or do you have a genuinely innocent explanation where your lawyers reasonably believe that if you sit down with investigators, you are going to convince them that, no, you're you're not going to be a target in this investigation. You're a mere witness or you're otherwise just not related at all. So I do think it's really significant that John Dowd was so convinced of the importance of Trump not having Mm. that interview that whatever he believed was going to occur, it was not going to be Trump convincing prosecutors or special counsel that he was not, uh, that there's a perfectly innocent explanation here, so much so that he appears to have resigned over it. That to me is obviously it's it's significant, you know, whether or not Trump is going to have the interview moving forward. But the fact that Dowd felt strongly enough and it's tied to that, I think is also sort of a really interesting nugget. The other piece, and this is sort of like going way, way back, you know, we've had sort of questions about, hey, is there really an obstruction of justice investigation? And one of the big giant puzzles here has been that Rod Rosenstein hasn't recused himself. Rod Rosenstein was part of sort of the the course of events that is certainly being looked into. That so, led to the firing of Jim Comey. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, the question was like, well, if he's sort of part of this, why wouldn't he have recused? One of our uh, one of the things we'd sort of speculated at the time was, hey, maybe there's actually not an obstruction of justice investigation or maybe it's overstated. And maybe that's the explanation. This seems to pretty clearly refute that getting us back to that question from a few months ago of, all right, now it seems really, really clear there's an obstruction investigation. Why is Rod Rosenstein not recused from this investigation? Well, Bowen, do you have a thought about that? I mean, because we've talked about this before, and it is, Susan's right, it's it's a real puzzle. And after this article, I'm still kind of scratching my head over it. Yeah, it accentuates the puzzle because it's, uh, you know, it's clear that if he's writing a report about the president's conduct, that there is, in fact, a, an investigation that somebody is a subject of. And it's uh, uh, it seems at least clear that Rod Rosenstein is a witness to some of the events and a participant in some of the events. And why he is also able to supervise the investigation is remains mystifying. A few little points about the subject-target distinction. Uh, number one, the president was furious at Jim Comey and ultimately fires him uh, in part because he will not say publicly that the president uh, was not under investigation. Now, according to the Washington Post, the uh, Bob Mueller 
uh, says that the president is under investigation. That's what being a subject of an investigation means. It means and, you're being investigated. Yes. And the president is thrilled and feels vindicated by this um, because at least he's not a target. Um, now, one other one other thing uh it is not clear to me that the president is actually capable of being a target of an investigation. Right. Because, right. and this, the Post story neglects this point, but I think it's really important. The Justice Department's position, which a lot of analysts, including me, assume Mueller will consider binding on him, is that the president is not amenable to criminal indictment while in office. The definition of a target is somebody that the investigation means to indict. Um, and so it is not clear to me that as a matter of definition that it is really possible for the president to be a target, at least while he's in office. And that means the president may be feeling vindicated by a, a kind of legal fiction that has actually no meaning as an evidentiary matter. Okay, so can I Drill down on that just a little bit as a sort of naive, non-legal expert reader of this story. The, you're suggesting the president may feel vindicated because of a legal fiction he doesn't understand. But I think if we look at his statements, his conduct throughout this past year, what we've seen is what he wants is for people to say in public that he is not uh, – that they're not looking at him um, – as someone who may have committed a crime, that there was no collusion. That's what he wanted Jim Comey to say to Congress. That's what he wanted Sessions to say. That's what he wanted the IC to say, you know, and um, and so this, you know, this sort of semantic distinction, the, these terms of art are meaningless to him, maybe because he doesn't understand them, but more importantly, because what matters to him is the public narrative. And he likes this not a target of the investigation because it creates a public narrative that he's not about to get dinged for a crime, whether it's a criminal indictment or an impeachment. This is about the narrative. It's not about the facts. Right. But the narrative is wrong, right? The the narrative, if you read the Washington Post story, is he's a subject of an investigation and Bob Mueller is preparing I, a report on I his conduct. I hear what you're saying, but I think if you look at this, if you think about it through the lens he uses, which is branding, messaging, and politics, okay? Not law, not impeachment proceedings, not his relationship with Congress. Branding, messaging, and politics. The message that is out there to the American public today and that I have no doubt Fox and Friends and all their friends are going to be repeating all day is the president's not a target of an investigation. Right. And so if and when a report comes out that implicates him in crimes that is sent forward to Congress for the possibility of uh, impeachment proceedings, it will feel to his base like a betrayal oh, of what they knew. And that's they will be all the more likely to reject it because of that. That's the game he's always been playing. It's about setting expectations. Yes. I think I think that's right. And and but I I, th I think Ben is right though, right? It it depends this uh, this narrative and even shaping the narrative at this point depends on Trump's base or a group of people fundamentally misunderstanding the significance. So the question is, what members of Congress are going to get out today? What former prosecutors are going to get out today and actually clearly explain the significance? 
I think there are two pieces that actually <laughs> I think no one is. Prove by that the this way, is, that this is potentially a very very bad news story for Trump. One that runs expressly against this narrative that you know he had nothing to do with anything. One is the point Ben made that actually, well, for most people, subject might mean kind of you know maybe you're not uh, implicated here. For the president, it potentially it's even more. It, it could carry even more significance if he cannot be a target. That means the subject is sort of you know the the worst thing that he can possibly be. So it's about whether or not there is, you know, there's an effective counter narrative here, you know, at, at the end of the day. So let's on the, on the subject of narratives, and let's just briefly address this question of report or reports that Mueller may be issuing. Now, to set expectations for this too, we're going off of our reporting at the posts, impressions that the lawyers seem to be getting from Trump's from the special counsel. So there's a little bit of, I think, as, as Ben put it in the Lawfare podcast last night, kind of, but there's there's glosses on glosses going on yes. here. But if we presume that Bob Mueller intends to issue some kind of a report, we've talked about how and whether that could become public before on the podcast. I think the general presumption is that some report like that is going to be public, made public, and if it's not, it's certainly going to leak. Um, then the question, I guess, is, is is that something that the president really needs to be worried about? Because to the points of narrative that you guys are talking about, this comes out and it's, okay, he's not a target. Um, we're not indicting you because we think that legally we can't. But we're going to write a report that basically looks, for all intents and purposes, like an indictment. I mean, that seems to me like something, if that's where we're going, that the president should not remotely be comfortable about. I mean, that, but, that, but what do you think? Well, so it very much depends what the report is, a matter about which the Post story is very vague, presumably because the reporters don't know. Um, and so let me sketch four different possible kinds of reports that are fully consistent with the Washington Post story that would be very different animals from the president's point of view. One is, the, the most benign from the president's point of view, is the regs require the special counsel when he wraps up an investigation to write a report to the deputy attorney general. And you could imagine this report being, uh, uh, here's what we did, here's what we found, there's no uh, plausible criminal case to bring against anybody, so we're wrapping things up. Good night. Uh, and maybe Rod Rosenstein makes that report public. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe there are some embarrassing details or things that people could politically criticize. But think of that like, you know, if it became public, like Jim Comey's closing of the Hillary Clinton right. email stuff, something that could kind be politi politi politically damaging, but not legally damaging, right. right? And it ends an investigation. That's option one. Option two, think of a independent counsel final report that, you know, uh, like the, the giant Iran-Contra report, right, where the special prosecutor at the end of an investigation writes a detailed report evaluating people's conduct and does it for, you know, public to, to as one quote in the story suggests, to answer public questions. Uh, now, this could be extremely damaging to the president to the extent that Bob Mueller makes uh, inferences or claims about people's motives and intentions and behavior. Um, there's a public version of that. That's option two. And a private version of that, which you know, Rod Rosenstein might or might not then release. 
Option four, this is, I think, the most damaging, is the possibility that Bob Mueller has concluded the president did not engage in any activity for which he could be indicted, either because he's president or because nobody could be indicted for it. Um, but it raises a plausible set of obstruction questions for purposes of the impeachment clauses. And so the report is effectively like Ken Starr's impeachment referral on the Monica Lewinsky stuff. It is directed at Congress and it is designed to present evidence of misconduct that might or might not be in Congress's judgment uh, constitute impeachable offenses. Those are all consistent with what the Washington Post reported yesterday, and they are very different in terms of their impact on the presidency. But uh, one thing that I think is important context, uh, sort of to what report we might expect is we are not at a preliminary point in the investigation. And so whenever we're talking about whether or not someone's a witness or a subject or a target and trying to sort of read the tea leaves on what might ultimately come out, this is not, you know, way, way earlier in an investigation where they don't quite know what's going on and they're putting people into buckets. And so they're saying, oh, you're a subject because we don't know anything yet. This is a very developed investigation involving the president of the United States. They're using the term subject, which to me also indicates that based on everything they've seen yet, they don't think Trump is just a witness. Mm -hmm. They don't think Trump has nothing to do with it. They actually think that there is real conduct here at issue. And so I do think that that, you know, again, it, it's just tea leaves. Who knows what will come out in the report? But it does kind of move the needle into, you know, hey, at, at this point, maybe it seems to me more likely than not that Mueller's team thinks there is something significant related to the president himself. All right. Speaking of the president and significant things. <laughs> uh, Rational security, breaking news. Breaking news. So uh, Karen DeYoung, my colleague over at the Post, has just published a story. Uh, the lead says, President Trump has instructed military leaders to prepare to withdraw U.S. troops from Syria but has not set a date for them to do so, according to a senior administration official. In a meeting with top national security officials Tuesday, Trump stressed that U.S. troops can be involved in current training tasks for local forces to ensure security in areas liberated from the Islamic State. But the president said that the U.S. mission would not extend beyond the destruction of the Islamic State and that he expects other countries, particularly wealthy Arab states in the region, to pick up the task of paying for reconstruction of stabilized areas, including sending their own troops necessary. Okay, let's put a if necessary, let's put a button on that second question for a second. Right. But tomorrow, let me kick this to you. Um, <clears throat> just like first, let's react to the significance of the news, and, and what do you make of this instruction that President Trump has apparently given the military? Right. So let's remember that it was just a couple months ago, I think at the very tail end of January, when Secretary of State Tillerson laid out in the greatest detail we had yet seen from the Trump administration, the U.S. policy towards Syria, which was a major um, shift, actually. It was an announced intention to keep American forces in Syria past the defeat of ISIS in order to reduce Iranian influence and provide leverage over a diplomatic uh, negotiation for the outcome of the Syrian civil war. That was a big policy shift. It was something that the U.S. military supported because they thought they needed to stay on the ground to prevent ISIS resurgence. Um, it was something that a lot of the diplomats and foreign policy people in the administration supported because they wanted to see reduced Iranian influence. American partners in the region were very happy about it. 
okay, that was just two and a half months ago, three months ago now. Um, and last week, President Trump at a rally sort of off the cuff said, we're going to be bringing our troops home from Syria very soon, very, very soon. Like really soon. Like really soon. And then um, yesterday, again, uh, in a meeting with irony of ironies, the leaders of the Baltic states um, who were here to celebrate Baltic Freedom Day um recognizing American support for their sovereignty and independence, even during the decades of their uh, occupation by the Soviet Union, uh, he said, again, we're going to withdraw our, our troops from Syria and bring them home. And, you know, I think that what we see here is a couple of things. Number one, that um, Trump's longstanding impulses about foreign policy are emerging now in a stronger way. He has always been suspicious of uh, foreign entanglements. He has always uh, preferred, uh, as he put it yesterday, to you know bring our troops home and focus on making America great again. Um, and so the the earlier policy announcement that we were going to stay in Syria doesn't mesh with Trump with his with his personal preferences. It does mesh with the kind of anti-Iran rhetoric of the administration. Um, but it's clear that, you know, this fight, which was ongoing between the kind of uh, retrenchment impulse and the anti-Iran interventionist impulse, Trump is now coming down on the side of retrenchment. Right. Um, now, what does this mean in practice? Okay, I think that uh, the news out of this um, meeting that Trump had with his national security team yesterday, it's not at all clear that these troops are coming home anytime soon. Uh, the fight against ISIS, by the way, isn't over. And the U.S. military um, says that very clearly. General Votel, the, the commander in chief of CENTCOM, the central command that's in charge of the anti-ISIS fight, just yesterday made clear that it's going to be at least six months, maybe a year, maybe more before uh, that final 10%, God knows how they quantify the stuff, of ISIS is eliminated, um, and also emphasize the need to stay and do stabilization work. And I think the, the, you know, so the real news to me here is that Trump is doing what Obama did, which is restricting the American engagement in Syria to an anti-ISIS fight and mm -hmm. setting aside these anti-Iran objectives, objectives related to the Syrian civil war. Um, he's going back to an Obama policy, which is all about ISIS. And by the way, that unidimensional Obama policy um, was short-sighted, and is and if Trump follows it, it will lead to the reemergence of extremism in Syria. I have no doubt. And can I ask? Can I ask a question? In your mind, is this connected to the announcement yesterday? that Trump wants to station troops along the Mexican border, as in, is what he's, because when he talks about Syria, he says, we want to get out of there and, you know, and rebuild at home. And his whole idea of rebuilding at home is about building a wall, right? And keeping out Mexicans and Central Americans. And so my, I, I look at these two announcements and I say, is he envisioning pulling U.S. troops out of Syria and stationing them all <laughs> along the Mexican border? Or are these two unconnected? Because that makes sense. I was, by the way, I was joking when I said that in the intro, but that's a great question. <laughs> it is, so, like, 
at the policy level, at the substantive level, it's preposterous on its face, right? But again, like, how does Trump think? We now have, you know, enough of a track record. He thinks in terms of narratives. And yes, that is his narrative. Bring our boys home from overseas and put them to work here at home, making America great again. Oh, in PS, and when they leave Syria, the Arab states will pay for it. Right. Right. Right, yeah, the whole exactly. Sort of transactional as, mercantile, right, right, right. right. Protection racket of foreign policy, right, and as if stabilization is something that just involves money and doesn't involve actually doing things on the ground, including with our with our special forces. So, yes, I think in in a narrative sense, that's exactly how he thinks about it, and it's not an accident that these things are in proximity. You know, the the whole. The whole fixation now on using our troops to protect our borders is also, for him, a way of ginning up a base that is really motivated by the fear of the outsider, the fear of the other. And motivated and pissed off that he signed an omnibus spending bill with only a billion plus dollars for the wall. Right. And so, you know, I I think that it's convenient for him to look really tough on bringing our boys home from Syria today. But I doubt that he actually cares whether they come home today, next week, six months from now, or 18 months from now. It's only 2,000 people. So I have sort of two questions, neither of which may be answerable, but are sort of the the most salient points seeing something like this. The first is sort of what is the humanitarian consequences here? Assuming, right, assuming he really does mean this, right? So so we're coming out on some time frame. Um, I, I'm certainly not a Syria, you know, expert other than, you know, following sort of news, but I have seen sort of two accounts, um, you know, from people who follow this closely. One is that... Um, you know, that it would be a humanitarian disaster that the United States would leave this vacuum, you know, the civil war would continue. And, you know, this, um, we see these horrifying reports about what Assad is doing to his own people, chemical weapons. There is a little bit of a counter narrative as well, of, you know, at this point, um, a decisive victory, even if it was for Assad, would potentially have, you know, it would, there would be less humanitarian sort of suffering overall. Does this change anything in terms of sort of the, you know, individual people on the ground? I, I know we've sort of, um, tabled the question of like moral responsibility in this area. I mean, we almost don't see it mentioned in these news reports, despite the fact that it really was the central thing we talked about whenever we were talking about some of the same choices uh, by Obama. So I think that's one sort of question mark. I don't know if you have thoughts or or answers on it. Um, The other is sort of what does this say about Trump and the military, right? So we saw Votel's comments, you know, it, it seems as though this is, it, it seems as though his own troops do not, and, and his military leaders do not uh, agree with this particular tact. Um, is this Trump overruling Mattis? Is this Trump saying, you know, forget what you're saying? Is this a, is this um, sort of signify a, a lack of or a diminishing influence by the Pentagon, by the military? Or is it, you know, there there were multiple options and, and Trump is just going back to, the, to Obama and, and maybe this is with sort of soft support of the military itself. So what do we draw from kind of the the fragmentation once again of the comments between Trump and his military leaders? Yeah, so on the substance of what does this mean for Syria and for the United States in Syria, I I actually I don't think that the US involvement in Syria fighting ISIS has had any significant effect on the immense humanitarian toll 
that Assad's war on his people has taken. Um, the the horrific civilian costs are being borne in the suburbs of Damascus right now. Uh, and the U.S. war against ISIS, yes, has had some humanitarian costs, but um, it, it it's a marginal factor compared to what Assad is doing in the civil war, and the U.S. is not involved in that. Um, in policy terms, you know, slicing off these other more ambitious policy objectives about trying to push back Iran or, you know, leverage a diplomatic outcome in the war in Syria. Um, basically, what this means is that for everybody else who's involved in Syria who do have broader aims, this is an announcement from the United States that, like, you guys go ahead, whatever you want to do, we're not going to get in your way. And by the way, we're going to be out of here pretty we're short soon. Timers, yeah. We're short timers. So it's, it's the equivalent except even balder and and more curt uh, of Obama's announcing withdrawal dates for Iraq and Afghanistan. Like, just wait us out. But by not announcing a date, Trump can say, well, I'm not doing that. Yeah, but he, but he, he has Obama said, I only care about one thing. Right. I only care about ISIS. So Turkey, <clears throat> you want to take Monbij? Right. Fine. Right. You know, Iran, you want to build a land bridge? Fine. Russia, you want to dominate the Levant? Fine. I mean, that's basically, in policy terms, the signal that's been sent. Right. I don't think the military wanted expansionist war aims, but I do think they wanted to do their job of defeating ISIS and do it well. And so I suspect that what they're going to try and do is massage the outcome of this presidential decision to let themselves stay long enough to do what they feel is a decent job of that. Well, let's. We've already alluded to our third topic, so let's kind of like just like naturally push into this with this question. Who which needs we, a segue, Shane? Who needs really? a segue? We're there. We did two and three together. It's yeah. like a chocolate vanilla swirl. Um, <laughs> I'm hungry. Oh, no. <clears throat> um, that sounds delicious. Uh, but you know, so okay, so if we're if we're we seem this to is be the ice cream Sunday <laughs> of podcasts. It really, really is. Aren't you hungry? Brought to you by ice cream. So this is what happens when we record in the morning and we right, don't have right, scotch. Right, right, right. We start true. talking about food and yeah. other. That's true. That's right. true. But it sounds like I mean we're kind of keeping with this theme of narratives. We've got, you know, Trump having his priorities, which I mean, it sounds like he's actually what he's doing in Syria makes him remarkably consistent in many respects with what he said he wants to do. Then there is the you know the push to put the troops. Uh, on the border. I mean, one way I think of this is this announcement that he wants to put U.S. military forces or possibly National Guard forces on the border is not so much because he favors that over the wall or it's a shift in policy. It's part of this narrative of I'm going to protect the border. And he has been getting this remarkable pushback, principally on Fox and on Fox and Friends from conservative commentators like Ann Coulter and others who have been like really criticizing him for seeming to forget the security of the United States by signing that omnibus spending bill that didn't have the many billions for the wall. Caving to the Democrats. Caving to the Democrats. Uh, you know, he's now he's conflated DACA and the caravans of these immigration, right. what I guess are more activists, really, that tend to come up through Mexico this time every spring. I mean, this is not a new thing that's happening. <clears throat> but it seems like there, too, there is a narrative that has captured his imagination and is leading 
to his policy decisions, which is to say, uh, I see this happening. I see this threat. The Democrats are doing nothing. I'm sending the military to the southern border. I which, alone can do it. Right. Well, this, this, in fact, is something that he can do alone, right, which is to dis- which is to dispatch forces to that area. And by the way, President Bush and President Obama did it, too, under very different circumstances. But there, it's not without precedent. So, I mean, Susan, is that – I guess one question for you is that is, should we be reading – his decision, or at least his announced decision, we'll see if it actually actually plays out, um, to send more military forces to the border, less as sort of a practical pol- actual policy decision and more as just sort of him reacting to the storyline and, and the feedback loop that he seems to be getting from one set of commentators in particular. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the only rational explanation to the extent there are rational explanations to be found here is that it's red meat to the base because it doesn't actually make sense you know, as sort of right. as effective border policy. And I think one thing that will be significant is uh, how border governors come down on this issue. So border governors, including Republican governors, were really clear they don't want a wall. They don't want money spent on a wall. And depending on whether or not it's National Guard troops, you know, and their their own states are having to put money into this. I, I do think that we're going to get um, some pretty visible feedback from, you know, especially Republican governors uh, that have constituents that are really, really attuned to sort of border issues. You know, look, the thing I've, I've seen a lot of people sort of bring up on Twitter is this notion of, of posse comitatus and, you know, that the military isn't supposed to be involved in sort of domestic law enforcement. Um, true as, as a broad principle, the posse comitatus Act actually only applies to the army. So, right, he can send Marines, he can send the Navy. You know, as a legal matter, he he certainly can do this. Um, but I think this really, it gets right back to the same issues that existed with, uh, you know, with the wall, which is even among people that believe there is a need for increased border security, right, whether or not it's as extreme or animus motivated as the president, you know, just even people who are, you know, homeland security experts that that want to see strong and secure borders, however they feel about immigration policy, none of them think that this is the thing that you need to do to have more secure borders. None, nobody thinks it's a bigger wall. Nobody thinks it's U.S. troops on the borders, right? It's, it's far more sophisticated systems of, of screening, of, you know, of, uh, of partnerships, you know, North American partnerships, these kind of things. And so once again, it's this thing of like, he latches on to this narrative of, you know, I want a strong and safe border. And yet no one has been able to sort of harness that instinct and put it into something that, that resembles maybe not even sort of rational policy, but, but uh, things that are reasonably designed to get the outcome that, that one would work. be interested. I I also think it's interesting, like, yes, it's red meat to the base and the talk radio crowd and all that stuff. But to what end is the red meat to the base, right? He's not up for re-election yet. The election that's that's going on this year is a congressional election, which means it's district by district. And as you said, it's those border districts and those border states that matter. A lot of them are Republican members. And so is he doing this in a way that's at all informed by what's good for those guys? Or is he doing this in the way he does most things, which is just exceedingly broad brush on the assumption that what's good for him is good for the party and it's going to be good for the election? And and consider to that point, too, and I actually I think it's the latter. He's making these decisions in an increasingly isolated environment 
where, you know. <clears throat> Meaning him and his television. Well, yeah. I mean, like, you know, key advisors, people who he's listened to. I mean, these kind of people who are, you know, the Trump whisperers of Hope Hicks and others have kind of Roger gone away. Stone. You know, Stephen Miller is still around. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he he's go- he's getting, you know, his, his secretary of state is gone. The national security advisor is in flux. But um, he'll always have Fox and friends. But he will always have it, right. And <laughs> I mean, I think. You're true friends. These true friends, right. But I They're think there if, for you. if we see, like, we even see this in his legal strategy recently where it almost, we joked about this last week, that the president seems to want to be, you know, a, a pro se party in the Russia investigation. He increasingly seems like somebody who is uh, taking his own counsel even more to heart than he normally does. He talks about he's finally getting the team that he wants around him. I mean, to me, this all, this looks like, particularly since it was sprung, this uh, uh, idea of sending the military to the border, I, I think maybe without much consultation, the Syria pullout certainly was something that took, there's been reporting on this by his advisors by surprise, he seems to be just operating with, yeah, we're going to do this. And I'm not really consulting really anyone about yeah. that. Yeah, well, you know, we always forget when we, we, we talk very earnestly about executive branch process, and some of us even mean it. Um, and <laughs> it anymore. <laughs> well, and yet the executive branch is ultimately a single person. Mm-hmm. And uh, that person gets to use or not use the processes uh, available to him as he sees fit. Now, there may be consequences for failing to have a reasonable policy process to decide, you know, what your objectives are with respect to the southern border and what resources you mean to use to do it. But unlike, for example, the judiciary, which has to follow processes because of the nature of the institution, uh, the president really doesn't. And so if the president wakes up and sees uh, on Fox and Friends that, uh, you know, that people are mad at him in his base because he's not really being uh, a badass about the border and decides, okay, we're deploying troops to the border. He actually does get to order that. And, uh, you know, as long as he's willing to live with the consequences for that. Except that that I I think he... actually gets to and he's very happy to sort of tweet it out or blurt it out or whatever and he doesn't care whether it happens or not because it gets into the media news stream it gets into the bloodstream of the base whether the policy ever gets implemented or not and and the backlash only comes later and you can be in denial about the backlash right so the other day he tweeted thanks to Rasmussen for uh, you know, this polling organization for a single poll that shows him at 50% approval rating. And he, he ignores all other polls, but he's very uh, approves of Rasmussen's poll. Well, that one consistently has rated him higher than yeah. all the others. Yeah, the rates him consistently yeah. higher. It, it's a, um, But the point is, if you look at only data that is favorable to you, it is possible to ignore all consequences uh, until they leap out uh, from behind the bookcase and grab you by the throat and say, boo. It's presidency (laughs) by confirmation bias, people. There's no monster under my bed. All right, let's move on to object lessons. Um, I will go first. I'm going to log roll. Uh, There's an event coming up where I will be at New America here in Washington, D.C. on 
April 16th at 4 p.m. Uh, I'm going to be having a conversation with Daniel Kurtzfalen, who's the executive editor of Foreign Affairs, about his... He's really, a smart cookie. He's a smart cookie and a great human being. Uh, he's a good friend. Um, of his great new book, which I flagged here before, uh, The China Mission, which is all about George Orwell's 13 months... Or George Orwell, <laughs> Jesus Christ. George Marshall. <laughs> <laughs> It's all about George Orwell in China. Oh, wow. I, I was like, God, I am going to read that book. I read, Jeez, I never heard about this. George Marshall, General George Marshall, uh, his unfinished war. This is about the 13 months he spent in China trying to uh, mediate a peace settlement. And I have to say, it's, it's an, actually a very timely book to read right now as we're looking at um, the possibility of negotiations with North Korea in particular – and it's a reminder of both how the the size of personality and human interaction and relationships are very meaningful in the course of negotiations and how sometimes they can mean absolutely nothing. And it is this incredibly frustrating and nuanced tale of what Marshall went through trying to negotiate with the nationalists and the communists in China and this question of who lost China, which I think, you know, he has a lot of new answers to. Um, but it's just a really fascinating read. It's a great story. He's done a really good job telling it, and we're going to have a conversation about that. So go to the New America website and register Monday, April 16th, 4 p.m. Come see it, or at least buy the book. Do the guy a solid. Ben, you have an object. It's too early to drink it. It is. Not really, but... So, it's never too early it's to never drink too early in to Trump's drink Washington. It, except uh, that we're not drinking it right now. We're merely admiring it. As rational security listeners know, last week we did a live event at the University of Maryland, uh, uh, Cary School of Law, thanks to our host, Daniel Citrin, and, uh, who gave us many goodies, uh, some of which we... Uh, consumed on the air. But uh, this one, I thought, just warranted being an object lesson of its own. It really is amazing. <laughs> um, it is a skull full of vodka. Um, a, a glass skull. A Not glass a real skull. skull. Not a human skull, guys. A uh, I would never hold like vodka. A <laughs> and no, Far for, too poor. And for those who, uh, who are worried, no, it is not Russian vodka. It is Canadian vodka. Uh, made by the Crystal Head Vodka Company. God, we don't even make our own vodka anymore, guys. <laughs> but I just want to say, like, this ups the rational security liquor game to, I mean, we did have the, uh, the uh, uh, Alex Stamos once sent us a, a florid Russian uh, bottle of vodka. Um, uh, but this, I think, really takes it to a different level. The vodka of the crystal skull. Uh, yes. And so, you know, take a look <laughs> on our show Jones page movie. at the crystal head vodka skull. And the next time we are in the afternoon recording, we will all uh, raise a glass uh, to Danielle Citron. Raise a glass to you, indeed. A, a vodka with a lemon, perhaps. <laughs> Citron. <laughs> um, well, that brings us to the end of the podcast, and sadly, we are all sober. But Susan's back, and we're happy. <laughs> we, we're not that sober. <clears throat> That's Susan true. We're high on life. Turns out if you're tired enough, it's indistinguishable <laughs> from being drunk. <laughs> That's why I'm going to have a baby. I just want to be buzzed all the time. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page somewhere out there. It's going to move this week. Oh, it is. Ooh, Get yeah. ready. We are, we are. You ready to bookmark a new URL? Yeah, no, no, no. We're, we're, 
The it's World Wide Web. Gonna, it's going to happen. By the time we record the next what Rational Security pa- Podcast, by the time we record the next one, Spaghetti on the Wall Productions website will be poof, gone. Wow. Like mushy spaghetti. You never saw it against the wall. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please leave us a rating and review. They've really been helping us out lately. Uh, we really appreciate it. We are going to read those reviews now that you're back, Susan. I'm sure probably some of them are like Dramatic about like reading. Many of them, I'm sure, were like, you know, bring back Susan for God's sake. This yeah, show you guys suck. Just give Susan a podcast. <laughs> Our audio engineer this week is Matthew Kahn, who always laughs at my little aside jokes. He does. It's very nice. Our show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. A musical guest this week, Donald Trump and the Subjects of Investigation. Good, oh, good, nice. Good. See, that's a real band yeah, name. Yeah, that, that, is. that could actually work. It's almost like, you know, uh, uh, Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. Like about it. as chaotic. It's just about like that. Um, yeah, and that's definitely a band that Sophia Yan would back up. On behalf of my friends, Tamara Kaufman-Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Yay. Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.